Well, hello, my friends. I'm a little late, a few minutes late here. I'm looking a little bit differently, probably via format. Uh, what I have going on right now is unable to use my laptop for my video, so I am using my wonderful little uh, iPhone, and hopefully that will be that will work just as well. And we'll try to figure out the best way to best way to do this. So if you're watching, uh, like Eric and Cindy Mosley are right now, even though they're uh, missing some time maybe with their wonderful little granddaughter, then send me a note. My cousin Gail, my friend Mark from. Oklahoma Christian College days. Uh, if this is looking okay, then please send me a little note on that. If it looks like it's uh, not doing too well, then feel free to put that on there as well. Uh, great to see you joining us, Jackson, and so many others that I know will probably be joining along as well here in just a few moments. We're going through the book of Acts, and today we find ourselves in that exciting chapter of Acts chapter 26, and I'm looking forward to sharing and reading through this particular uh, uh, chapter because uh, it does have some great and wonderful things that are going on. Uh, so hopefully you're able to see this okay. I'm going to try to make sure that this uh, works well, and we will uh, do a little bit of study from the book of Acts. I do want us, even though we're going to end up in Acts 26, I do want us to start in Acts chapter 9. So while you are um, turning to Acts chapter 9, if you have your Bible with you, I'll say hello to my old buddy, old pal Cho Law, who is a dear, dear, wonderful friend from Lackland Terrace Church of Christ and South San High School days back in San Antonio and followed us, uh, worked with us, and took pictures of us around the whole school while Joyce and I were going uh, through our uh, senior year of dating, and he was the school photographer. So yes, Joyce and I ended up in the annual, uh, perhaps as much as anybody, maybe not quite, but anyway, Cho, thanks, man, and then helped us move back to San Antonio after college. It was just fun, fun times. Uh, so Larry and Lynn Murphy, hello. Uh, so many others that are joining in. Great to have you. And uh, as we begin Acts 26, I want us to start in Acts chapter 9, because in Acts chapter 9, there is this statement of prophecy that's going to happen for the Apostle Paul. While he is still Saul of Tarsus, he has uh, had a face-to-face -face encounter with Jesus. Uh, Ananias is sent to him uh, to uh, baptize him and to uh, help him get started on his journey to give him sight after he had lost his sight on the road watching, uh, seeing Jesus. And now um, God is trying to convince Ananias to go see him because at this time Saul of Tarsus is the biggest enemy uh, that the church has in the world. Um, and so God calls, Jesus calls Ananias and says, I want you to go find Saul of Tarsus and he's praying and tell him what I want you to tell him. And, um, and so um, Ananias questions that and says, I'm not sure you really want Ananias to do that. But then in Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And so even at the earliest time when uh, the Apostle Paul is just being converted to Christ, uh, Jesus sends Ananias to him and has, uh, has him tell Paul, who, the man who would become Paul, 
that you've got to, uh, you're going to have to suffer, but you're also going to be my messenger. You're also going to share my message uh, to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, and even the kings that you will encounter. And that's exactly what we find today in Acts chapter 26, uh, just as throughout uh, Luke's uh, first volume, the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, one of the, uh, the pervading themes through that book is Jesus steadfastly setting his face toward Jerusalem, just a man on a mission, realizing that he is going to end up in Jerusalem and that he will be delivered to sinful people and they will take his life. Uh, just as that's Luke's first uh, mission in his first volume, uh, the Gospel of Luke, and the book of Acts, it's kind of similar, but with Paul and with the final uh, destination, not Jerusalem, but in this case, uh, the capital city of the empire, Rome itself. And we're actually going to see that uh, happen. And because of the things that we've been reading about in the past few chapters and in this chapter, we realize that that is what brings that about, that Jesus will have Paul go to uh, to Rome and testify. But first, he is going to be testifying in Caesarea, this very important Roman uh, city. And, uh, uh, and he is going to be sharing the message of Christ and sharing the story of not just Jesus, but his own story as well, uh, as he is going to be uh, talking to King Agrippa in the presence of the Roman governor, uh, Festus. So again, wonderful to see so many people. Our, our North Carolina friend, Dr. Lindsay, great to see that you're on here. Our dear, sweet, wonderful sister Wanda and so many others that are, um, that are participating in these studies. I appreciate uh, that support. And so as we uh, get back to chapter 26, let's read those last few verses of chapter 25 because they really do lead right into uh, where we're going to be in chapter 26. So chapter 25, beginning at verse 23 of the book of Acts. The next day, King Agrippa and Bernice, his sister, came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking military officials and the prominent men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul, who was the governor, uh, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. Remember, that's what happened when Paul was arrested in Jerusalem and then had to escape because his life was threatened and, um, and ends up in Caesarea being taken there uh, heavily guarded. And now the Roman governor is Festus and he is uh, new to the job and uh, King Agrippa, Herod Agrippa II, is uh, uh, going to be hearing this case. Um, and so this is what uh, continues on in verse 25. The governor says, I found he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. Remember, Paul is a Roman citizen, can appeal to Caesar if he feels like that's the only way he can get justice. And that's exactly what he has done. 
Verse 26, But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation I may have something to write. For I think it is unreasonable to send a prisoner onto Rome without specifying the charges against him. Yeah, that wouldn't work well for the old Roman governor. <laughs> and so he says, I need, to, I need to send him, but I need to send him with something that is... Um, that is that I can tell him, here's why this guy is standing before you today. Here's why he has appealed uh, to the emperor. Um, and so that's what the governor is wanting to do. And as he talked to King Agrippa the day before about this, King Agrippa said, well, I'd kind of like to hear him myself. And so the governor says, well, tomorrow you will. And that's exactly where we are. There's a great assembly gathered. It is quite the scene, almost like the national conventions that we see are going to be going on in this election year, or at least in previous election years when people gathered in person. That's what was happening right here. And, and so Festus has introduced that what was going on that day, and now um, King Agrippa is going to uh, give Paul permission uh, to speak. And so Acts 27 now, beginning in verse uh, 1. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Acts 26, verse 1, You have permission to speak for yourself. Now remember, we saw, we've seen some other times when Paul could defend himself especially in Acts chapter 22. Uh, we've seen a little bit of it in chapter 24 before Felix. We've seen a little bit of it in chapter 25 before Felix's replacement as governor, Festus, the current one. And now before King Agrippa and everyone that's gathered there, uh, this austere setting, uh, Paul has the chance to fulfill exactly what Jesus told Ananias uh, was going to happen. He was going to be able to be the witness to Christ before kings and others in authority. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Remember, the Herods were uh, connected with the Jewish people, and they had a lot of history uh, with the Jews. And, um, and so they were very familiar with the things that were going on uh, during this time. And, and Herod himself uh, was familiar, and that's likely why he wanted to hear Paul himself because he did have that connection, and he knew the Jewish history and the Jewish heritage, and he likely knew a little bit about this sect that people sometimes called the Way, this group that had begun to be called Christians in Antioch of Syria, uh, which was the church that sent Paul and Barnabas and then later Paul and Silas out on mission journeys. Um, and so Paul begins his defense, and he tells he begins it very respectfully to King Agrippa. Look, I know that you're familiar with this stuff, and I'm, I gladly, I, I gladly talk to you about why I'm here and what I believe. Uh, it's a great, great opportunity uh, for Saul of Tarsus, now Paul the Apostle, to tell his story, and that's what he does. Verse 4 of Acts 26, the Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. 
They have remember Paul as a young man, as a uh, growing up, and then as a Pharisee of Pharisees uh, from a significant family, a Roman citizen by birth, but also uh, leaders in the Jewish uh, way. And Paul himself, having studied in Jerusalem under the great teacher Gamaliel, so he spent a lot of time in Jerusalem. He reminds them of that, and he tells uh, the king, uh, "Hey, I people know me. I, I this is not something that I've kept secret. They knew about me when I was growing up in Tarsus. They knew about me when I was uh, learning and uh, being trained in Jerusalem, and and while I was there in Jerusalem." Acts 26, verse 5. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they're willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. Uh, in uh, other places, such as Philippians 3, he's going to call himself a Pharisee of Pharisees. Uh, be, and that's what he's going to tell the story of why he would refer to himself. At this point, he reminds all of those who are hearing that he is a Pharisee, uh, a very strict sect of the Jews, as we know from reading the Gospels and how they interacted with Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 6, and now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. He connects Christianity with his Jewish heritage, and rightly so, and he says the reason that I'm on trial today is because of what our people have always believed and now has been fulfilled. Verse 7, this is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Remember earlier he had caused quite a scene when he realized that part of the group were Pharisees, who were accusing him, who believed in the resurrection. Part of the group were Sadducees, another sect of the Jews who did not believe in the resurrection. And so he made it a point to try to divide them and save his own life. Uh, but now we see that um, the main point here, the sticking point, is the resurrection. Christianity stands or falls on the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and that's where Paul goes right from the start. He says, look, why would anyone consider it so unfathomable that someone could rise from the dead? Um, it sounds fanciful enough, but at the same time, as we remember hearing about all the stories and the credible witnesses and the changed lives, including this man who's talking right now, Paul the Apostle, um, it's, it's, a, it's a credible belief. It's still faith. Uh, to believe in the resurrection of Christ, but it's not blind faith. It's a faith that's based on something, and that's the point that Paul will make today. Verse 9, I too, he tells them, including King Agrippa, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus, um, and that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. This is the old Saul of Tarsus. And he says, this is who I was. This is what I was doing. I was acting very much like these ones who have accused me today are acting. 
verse 12 of Acts 26. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, one of the languages of the Jews, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. That last part, kicking against the goads, is the, this is the only place where that is. It's not found in Luke's narrative in Acts 9, and it's not found as Paul tells the story in Acts 22, but it is found here. And so this is part of what Jesus tells him. And we, we, it's not something that in our, in our world that we don't have a lot of people who are involved in agriculture. We do have some and many here in Tyler, um, but a lot of folks that aren't. And so you picture someone trying to goad uh, an ox or some other animal into doing what that animal doesn't want to do. And maybe a pitchfork or some uh, sharpened pole that they can try to goad them into moving on and doing what uh, the farmer wants him to do. Uh, that's what Jesus is doing to Saul of Tarsus. He's goading him, trying to point him a certain direction. And yet what Paul does is he's kicking, he's reacting against that. And he's, uh, he, he's not being very successful. Uh, Jesus is basically telling Saul of Tarsus, look, I've been trying to reach you, trying to get you to do what you need to be doing and yet you keep kicking back against me. And so that's what uh, Jesus tells him. That statement, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Uh, in this last verse, verse 14, I did a sermon series a while back uh, here at West Irwin Church of Christ in Tyler on the places in scripture where a person's name was repeated. Um, and that's, uh, there were several of those, such as Martha, Martha, Jesus talking uh, to Martha herself, Moses, Moses, Abraham, when he's about to kill his son as thinking that that's what God wants, because that's what God had told him to do. God stops him, Abraham, Abraham, um, and, and the child is saved. Um, here it is the Apostle Paul telling his story reminding us of that first encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus and Jesus, the bright light, talking to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Acts 26, verse 15, then I ask, who are you, Lord? <laughs> Saul thought he was doing the will of God, and yet he wasn't. And so when Jesus confronts him, he's not even for sure who it is that is talking to him. I am Jesus whom you're persecuting, the Lord replied in verse 15. And how Saul's heart must have sunk then. How he must have realized, thought of all those people that he had had beaten, that he had had in, put in jail. People that he had approved, as he had just said, of their being put to death. Um, and now he realizes that what they were saying was true. I am Jesus of Nazareth whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up, verse 16, and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And so Saul of Tarsus receives his call from Jesus of Nazareth himself. 
Uh, later on in 1 Corinthians 15, he would make the point that he was an eyewitness of the resurrected Lord. Jesus appeared to him just as he did to the other apostles, just as he did to so many. Verse 19, so then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, <clears throat> and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. We hear of this, in, uh, this interaction between Saul and Jesus after Saul had been persecuting the church with everything he had, doing it so sincerely, wholeheartedly, just as he describes his fellow Jews in the book of Romans uh, in those great, that great uh, passage in chapters 9 through 11 as, as being full of zeal but, but no knowledge. There's one thing about zeal, there's one thing about passion, and those are great, great things. But without knowledge, then they, they can do great harm. And that's what the Jews were doing. That's what Saul of Tarsus did. Very passionate indeed, but passionate in the wrong direction. And so Paul talks about that with himself. He talks about that referring to his Jewish brethren. And he tells King Agrippa and the others gathered here today, that was me. That's exactly how I uh, was living. But when, when, that in, when I had that encounter and when Ananias came to me and he touched my eyes and he healed me and gave me my sight back and and he told me, as we read in Acts 22, verse 16, so, so Saul, what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized and wash your sins away. What he tells King Agrippa here is that, hey, I obeyed. I was obedient. And I did what I was told. And then I began right away preaching the message of Christ that I had been trying to destroy and defeat. Starting right there in the city of Damascus where he had been converted to Christ after seeing Jesus on the road and following his instructions, going into the city, praying and fasting for three days, and then being baptized by Ananias, and beginning to preach right away. Right there in Damascus, he goes to Jerusalem. Barnabas befriends him and helps him to be able to interact some with the other apostles and the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. And then he says, in all Judea and to the Gentiles. That was God's calling for him, just as Peter was to the Jews, Paul was to the Gentiles, and he preached uh, this important message that is so clearly summarized, so beautifully summarized uh, here in Acts chapter 26, uh, around starting at about the middle of verse 20. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. No, those deeds don't save us. And we read that in Acts 2, verses 1 through 10. We read that in Titus 3, verses 3 through 8. And yet there is that call to follow up that repentance with deeds. John the Baptist, when he came and people were coming to him, including the Jewish leaders, he tried to talk them out of it. He said, hey, look, don't, don't come to me just because it's cool. Come to me if you're really willing to repent, if you're really, really willing to change. And, and so they said, well, what do you mean? And John said, live your lives bearing fruit that indicates your repentance. Let that change in your life be seen in how you live your life. Uh, and that's what Jesus told them. That's what Paul is telling them as well. Demonstrate that repentance. After you repent and turn to God, 
demonstrate that repentance by your deeds, by your actions. Uh, throughout the New Testament, I firmly believe that most all of the New Testament is written to Christians to tell us how to do exactly what Paul just said, how to demonstrate our repentance by our deeds, how we should live on this side of the cross, on this side of the watery grave of baptism, on this side of our salvation. What does that, what does that look like? In Ephesians 2 verse 10, it says it's we're God's creation, God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good deeds. Uh, Titus 3 verse 8, we're to be devoted uh, to doing what is good. Uh, Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 5 uh, says that we are salt and light and that hopefully when others see our good deeds as the light of the world, they will glorify God. Well, that's, that's the purpose that we have uh, living today. That's how Paul summarizes it in verse 20. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. Verse 21, that is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day, just as he had promised. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike, from the lowest pauper to King Agrippa himself. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer, and as the first to rise from the dead, would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. This is the message that has been going on since Jesus walked this earth. Uh, he told his disciples repeatedly in the Gospels, the Son of Man is going to Jerusalem. I'll be betrayed by my own people. I'll be delivered into the hands of the Romans, and I will be killed. And on the third day, I will rise from the dead. That was his message all along. And that is what Paul says again still. In Acts chapter 2, the first day of the church, that was the message, that, that you killed this man this Jesus. And they had done that just less than two months previous to the time when Paul was speaking to them on that first day of Pentecost, uh, 50 days after the Passover, 50 days after the time uh, when Jesus had been killed. You killed him, God raised him, and now he has, he has announced that he is Lord in Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And as you know, in Acts 2, they said, so what do we do? And because Jesus died on the cross, there is an answer to that question. Without his death, burial, and resurrection, we would the answer would have been there's absolutely nothing you can do because there's no way that you can make up for your sins on your own. And so you're just, you're just destined to eternal death. Um, but that's not true because Jesus did die on that cross. He did not come down even though they mocked him and challenged him to do so. Uh, he was buried. He was raised from the dead. He ascended to the Father. And now there is an answer to that question, what must I do? And the answer came back to repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2 verses 36 through 38. Paul did that exact same thing in Acts 9 after, uh, after Ananias restored his sight. He baptized him into Christ. Uh, now Paul is telling all of those who will hear, including the Roman governor and King Herod Agrippa himself, uh, that the Messiah would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, and that he would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Well, this, this about does it for the governor Festus. He's, he thinks Paul is off his rocker. 
And so at this point, verse 24, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. And it's likely that that's what the governor thought, but it's also likely that he was starting to feel a little bit insecure about this. I mean, he had set this meeting up <laughs> and King Agrippa is there and the governor is thinking, boy, if, if this isn't going well with the king, good old, good old Festus here could be in big trouble. And so perhaps that's part of what's going along here. But hearing this story from, uh, from Paul himself, he's, he's heard enough. And so he says, whoa, 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 Paul, your great learning has driven you insane. You've got too much education, boy. This is, this is not done so well for you. Now you've gone off your rocker. Um, but Paul responds. And in doing so, he shifts the attention from the Roman governor Festus to King Herod Agrippa himself. Verse 25, I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Wow. <laughs> these are men that could have him killed at a moment's notice. Granted, he's appealed to Caesar, so maybe Paul feels a little bit safe, but not necessarily. One word from them, and Paul is a dead man. Uh, and and yet, and yet, he responds to the governor and says, no, I'm not crazy. This, this is not a crazy story. Uh, these men that, that preached this message, they, they were not out of control. They were not crazy. They accused Jesus of being crazy as well. But Jesus was never out of control. Even when he was angry, he remained in control and did exactly what the moment called for. <clears throat> Paul says the same thing here. Look, I'm not crazy. I'm not insane, Festus, but, and I, I, I know that, that King, King Agrippa is familiar with all of this. <clears throat> he knows what I'm talking about. Uh, he's familiar with this story. <clears throat> Excuse me. He has known this story that the Jews were looking for all of his life. He's familiar with the hope of Israel looking towards that Messiah. And he has heard the stories that some claim that Jesus is that Messiah, that some claim that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And he is familiar with that. And so Paul says, I, I, don't, I don't mind speaking freely about this. Uh, I, I don't mind it at all. And then he points to King Agrippa and he says, look, you know about this stuff. Everybody knows about this stuff. It wasn't done in a corner. And that's one of the great, great things that makes Christianity such a credible religion. It wasn't done in a corner. People started talking about the resurrection of Jesus the day it happened. The Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities were so worried that they concocted this story and paid off the soldiers that these, these weak-kneed uh, apostles came and defied an extra-armed Roman guard who were sent to guard this tomb or their lives would be lost with the seal of the governor and a great big stone in the way to block any entrance to the tomb, that these men came and somehow broke in and stole the body of Jesus after overpowering these armed Roman soldiers. Um, that's just as fanciful, at least, maybe more, than believing that Jesus actually rose from the dead that day. 
But whether it was believed or not, it was proclaimed. It was told, and it wasn't told in secret. They announced it, and people saw that, and they heard that. And then after the day of Pentecost, again, less than two months later, right in the same city where these events took place, it is, it is proclaimed in an even greater way that Jesus is the Messiah, that we are to repent and be baptized and, and to uh, obey his will and to live a life that loves God first of all and loves neighbor as self and, and is just as much a servant as Jesus was in his own lifetime. Uh, that became the call to, to repent, as Paul had said earlier, and to demonstrate that repentance by your good works and good deeds. Um, Paul, Paul challenges them, and he tells them, look, this is, this is not something that anybody has tried to hide. Quite the contrary. This is something we've been very open about preaching and proclaiming. And then he looks at King Agrippa. King Agrippa, verse 27 of Acts 26, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Again, the Herods were connected with the Jews, and King Agrippa was very familiar with all of this, and Paul knew him well enough to know that he was a believer in his Jewish heritage, and that he was a believer in the prophets. And Paul asks him point blank, do you believe the prophets? Because this is the fulfillment of what they had said, and I know you believe what they said. And then this great verse, verse 28 of Acts 26. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? And this is where we get that great old Christian hymn, almost persuaded. Remember that invitation song? Uh, you probably had sung it with your fingers like this on the pew in front of you, uh, wondering if you needed to go forward or not. It's a great, great hymn. has even a line from Jeremiah 8 uh, in one of the verses, almost persuaded a harvest is past. That great verse in Jeremiah 8 that says, the, the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. Well, wow, what some great songwriting there. Um, and then there's another version of Almost Persuaded. You might remember it from the 60s if you were a country fan, um, but it had a little bit different context. Uh, you know, and I was almost persuaded. My dear friend Linda Booker just signed on, and I'm glad you got to see that one. Well, that's not exactly the kind of song that we would connect with the teaching of Jesus. It's kind of one of those good old country adultery songs, except, except that one, which actually spent a long time at number one back in the 60s, that one uh, ends up better. It ends up with that guy being almost persuaded, but your sweet love made me stop and go home. Yay, if only that happened every single time someone was tempted to be unfaithful to their spouse. If only that happened every time in one of those great country songs, but we know that neither of those things is true. Well, that's not the almost persuaded that I was talking about. It's almost persuaded. And you say, well, Bill, it doesn't say anything about being almost persuaded there. Well, it does in the old familiar authorized version, the King James Version from 1611. And it's not a good translation. And if you look at a good commentary or look at some other translations like the NIV or the English Standard Version or some others, they'll say something like what the NIV says here in verse 28. Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? King Agrippa asked Paul. And, and what he's asking there is, do you think that in just 
a few words, you can do this and just, it's almost like he's saying, do you think in one Bible study, you can persuade me to be a Christian? Do you think in such a little while, uh, with such brief teaching, that you could persuade me to be a Christian? That's probably the better translation. I still like those old, almost persuaded songs, though. Paul replied in verse 29, short time or long, lots of words or few words, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. Remember, Paul is, he's a prisoner. He's been accused. People have wanted him dead. And he has appealed to Caesar. And he is still basically incarcerated. He is before the king, the governor, all of those others that are gathered there in this great, very pompous setting. And so they've got him chained. I mean, they don't want this guy breaking loose. And, and so Paul, when King Agrippa says, Paul challenges him and he says, King Agrippa, I know that you believe the prophets. And the king responds and says, Paul, do you th- are you really trying to convert me? Do you think in just this, this amount of time, uh, in, in just this brief setting, you could persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul says, look, I don't care how many words it takes, how many studies it takes, how long it takes. I would love for that to happen, not only for you, O King, but for everyone that can hear my voice today. What a great, great statement. What a great, great moment. And again, this is, only, this is one of only three times in the New Testament where the term Christian is actually used. Uh, we saw it at the very, uh, the very first time it was used in Acts chapter 11, Verse 26, that great sponsoring congregation that sent Paul and Barnabas and then later Barnabas and John Mark and Paul and Silas and Timothy out on their mission journeys. Um, The disciples were called Christians first in Antioch, not in Jerusalem, uh, not in anywhere else, but in Antioch of Syria, not even in Judea. Uh, the disciples were called Christians first. There's another time when that term is used, and that's in 1 Peter 4, and it's used in the context of persecution, saying, look, if anyone suffers, let them suffer as a Christian. If they suffer as a Christian, there is blessing. If you're just suffering because you deserve it, then you're not blessed because of that. But if you're persecuted, if you're hurt, if you're suffering because of the cause of Christ, because of your faith in Jesus, then that's something. So if you suffer, suffer as a Christian. Suffer as one who is like Christ. Suffer as one who is a follower of Jesus Christ. Well, there are three instances where that term is used. That one in 1 Peter 4, Acts 11, verse 26 that we mentioned, and this one. Do you think, Paul, in such a short time, in such a little while, and with such few words, do you think you could persuade me to be a Christian? King Agrippa asks, And Paul says, as we all would say, I would like nothing better. I would love for you and for everyone else hearing this message to be a Christian, to be just like I am, except for these chains, Paul says, to know that peace and joy that chains and jail cells and threats of death cannot hamper. And that's what Paul had. And and that's what he wants for everyone else. And that's what we want for everyone else else. We want them to know the peace and the joy that can come only through Jesus Christ. Um, Paul replied, verse 29, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. 
The king rose, verse 30, and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. After they left the room, they began saying to one another, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So they confer after they leave the room and they chat about it. And the verdict is not guilty. And rightly so, not guilty. This man is innocent. He he hasn't done anything deserving of death. Clearly, clearly, he believes everything that he's preaching. And whether you believe it or not, you cannot doubt that Paul believed it with every cell of his being. And that, again, attests to the resurrection and its credibility. What would change someone like Saul of Tarsus? What would change his mind? to where now he would stand in the presence of the highest authorities in the land and be willing to risk his life and lose his life and say, I believe this. This is the truth. This is the fulfillment of the prophets. This man was dead and is now alive. I've seen him. I've seen him. And he has called me to share with you the same message that I heard, which was he died for you. And he was raised for you. And now you can have forgiveness and salvation through his blood that was shed. What a great, great moment. It is amazing. Just amazing. And um, as as the king and um, Bernice and the governor, Festus, are all there together and the others that are there with them, people in authority, uh, their, their assistants and others, um, they say, you know, this guy's done nothing worthy of death. In fact, he could be set freed, except he's appealed to Caesar. And because of that, we're going to send him. Do you remember what uh, was told Paul in Acts chapter 25, verse 12? Uh, You've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar shall you go, the governor said. And, and we're going to see that in the next couple of chapters. In chapter 27 that we'll look at on Thursday, a great and exciting uh, narrative. It's almost like a ship's log of the events that happened on that voyage <laughs> from Caesarea finally to Rome. And the journey, the changing of the ships, the weather, uh, the, the being lost at sea, uh, the being shipwrecked on the island of Malta, and then finally waiting out the winter there, and then going on and reaching um, the, uh, uh, the land of Italy and walking up uh, through the land, being met by some Christians from Rome and traveling uh, ultimately to uh, Rome. Christianity stands or falls on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you remember that the Roman governor himself, Festus, made that clear when he was talking uh, to King Agrippa. In verses 18 and 19 of Acts 25, Uh, He says this, when his accusers, when Paul's accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. The governor is talking to the king. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. What a great description by this Roman governor of exactly why Paul's life is in danger and will ultimately, probably not this time around, but ultimately be taken from him. Why? Because of the claim about a dead man named Jesus that Paul and others said was now very much alive. 
We believe that as well. Christians today, disciples today, we believe that Jesus lived. We believe that he died on the cross. We believe that he was buried and we believe that that tomb was found empty. We believe that he was raised from the dead and we believe that he ascended to the Father and we believe that he will one day come again. When will that be? Don't know. Might be today. Um, might be 2,000 years from now still, but it doesn't matter to people of faith because people of faith are watching for it to come, uh, whether it comes now or a 1,000 years from now. We will continue to live the same way. We will continue to live out our faith. We will continue, as Paul has said, to demonstrate our repentance by our deeds. We live out the life that Jesus has called us to live and that Jesus has raised us from the watery grave of baptism uh, to live. Just as Paul told King Agrippa, I would love for you to know what I know and to experience what I experience and to have what I have. Uh, this faith in Christ, this joy and peace that can come only through the Son of God himself. Uh, Paul shares that message with King Agrippa, with all who were there that day, and he shares that message with us. And I hope that you have responded to that message. I hope that you in your heart have changed your life, repented, and begun to live unselfishly rather than selfishly, seeking to please God rather than just to do what you want and what makes you happy or what you think uh, will please you but rather to search the scriptures as those Berean Christians did in Acts 17 to see what is true and to live according to, to what that word says. I hope that that's you, and I also hope that you're willing to do what Paul is willing to do here, and that is before great people, before not-so-great people, before whoever will listen, to share your story. Remember here and in Acts 22, Paul shares the story by sharing his story. And you can do that as well. You can share the story of Christ by sharing your story, how things were in your life before you became a Christian. That's what Paul starts with, his life as Saul of Tarsus persecuting the church. You can talk about how you became a Christian, just as Paul does here as he talks about that face-to-face -face encounter with Jesus and going into the city and being told by Ananias uh, to get up and be baptized in Acts 22, verse 16. And you can talk about your life since then, just as Paul does. You can talk about how Jesus has been with you through thick and thin. He hasn't saved you from all the trouble. There's no guarantee of that. In fact, there's, again, guarantee that some of your suffering may be because of your Christian faith. Um, and so the Christian faith doesn't spare you from that, but it does offer God's presence through it. Uh, you can tell that story. You can tell your story, your life before Christ, your conversion to Christ, your life since then with Christ. That's all Paul does here in Acts 26. And as he does it, he looks King Agrippa and the others that are there square in the face. And he tells them, and we can too, I don't care how long it takes, how short it takes, how many words, how few words. What I want for you is what Jesus has given to me, the forgiveness of sins, the salvation of your soul, 
the hope of eternity in his presence in heaven. That's what we want for everyone. And I hope and pray that as you live your life, um, you're finding opportunities to share that message as well. Thursday, we take that great boat ride <laughs> in Acts 27. And then next week, we'll finish up our study through the book of Acts. May God bless you as you witness for the one who died for you.